0: previously on the season.
1: I shouldn't like football at all, being a woman, being a feminist, but I love it. And this is not a good thing, I guess. It's just the precision of the teamwork and the controlled, I don't want to say violence, but the controlled violence.
2: Putting the entire offense in a bag and beating the bag, you know, that's a sack. It demoralizes the whole offense. There's no sport like it. Um, What you do on the field really isn't legal in most places. And that's that's the part I like, is the hitting.
3: It's time to talk about the hitting, the bruising, the satisfying crack of helmets, and what it does to the men who play the game, including this guy.
4: Come on, boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan. Go groan. Go groan alone roll
3: your bones, alone. Let's travel in time now and examine the life of Jack Kerouac. Maybe you know he went to Columbia before he wrote On the Road. But chances are you didn't know he played football for Columbia. It's the whole reason he came to New York, later met Allen Ginsberg, became a high priest of the counterculture. All of that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't first been a terrific athlete.
0: Which I think it's, is, is not a widely appreciated fact. This is
3: Ian Scheffler, a writer who got interested in Kerouac the athlete a few years ago. And he wrote this fascinating piece for The New Yorker called Football and the Fall of Jack Kerouac. Scheffler says it was a touchdown he scored in a 1938 high school game that caught the eye of a Columbia
0: recruiter. There's a a famous still photograph of him scoring that game-winning touchdown in high school. And there's an immense physicality to it, the strain of the cords in his neck as he's just pushing across the line. Kerouac didn't actually write much about sports, not much that was published anyway.
3: But he kept dozens and dozens of notebooks from boyhood on, cataloging all his games. He clipped pictures of himself from the local newspaper sports pages. All this stuff is now kept inside the New York Public Library, the building with the Lions where Isaac Gewertz is the keeper all, yeah. of the collection. Is this the one that you would want to look at the Thanksgiving? 1930? Oh, I'm sorry, hey, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I got I'm sorry, Jack. Um, so I'm here with both Ian Scheffler, a youngish Kerouac scholar, and Isaac Gewertz, an older Kerouac scholar. They've never met before, but now they're both reading from his journal. It's the same kind of black-and-white marbled notebook you can still buy today, and I feel like a matchmaker.
0: We won 8-0, that's it, right? Tuesday, November... Thursday, November 24th. Yeah, I caught pass and
4: plowed over. The other score was a safety by a rooter. It took three years to beat Lawrence, and we did it. Uh, Radio lauded me. More news later. Biz got his letter, had big turkey dinner. I'm big hero, dot, 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 dot. (laughs) Heh, heh.
3: It's crazy, the things they've saved here. A pack of beech nut gum that belongs to the great writer... Pencils and pens and Valium that was prescribed to him, Swiss Army knives, crutches in a box that says on the side of it in all caps, and I'm not joking, Jack Kerouac's crutches. Yeah. Well, they don't look like crutches today. No, they? Actually, I was just we, the they look exactly
0: like crutches today. <laughs>
3: crutches today are not made of wood. Well, existing, we have we, yellowish. We have
4: the rubber tops mm-hmm. here, but that's we don't keep it on there because they're drying out and it would just make it worse. But,
3: Anyway, they're made of wood. Kerouac needed these crutches because in only his second game playing for the Lions, he twisted his leg badly. Ferocious pain shot through the limb. But his coach
4: thought he was malingering and uh, forced him to play. So he played a game on a broken leg until he just finally collapsed and couldn't and had to come out.:
3: An X-ray later showed it really was a fracture. He actually wrote about this in a fictionalized memoir where it says maneuvering himself into the Columbia cafeteria.
4: And um, he went around the campus on his crutches, and he was very proud to do that, sort of a veteran of the football war. And they kept him all his life. He kept the crutches all his life, so it it meant a great deal.
3: You can sort of see why you might be proud of this in a perverse way. Kerouac had been in battle. More than one person has told me, in this sport, in football, there's a 100% injury rate. How you do as a team, as a player... It has everything to do with how you deal with injuries. Hello and welcome to the season. I'm Ilya Meretz. Last week, we talked mental toughness. This week, it's physical toughness. What football does to the body and what we can do about it. We'll hear from a coach, a mom, and from players. Injuries play a role in the Lions' next game, too, against Yale. Forty Yale players have been injured or sick. Twelve are out for the season. But first, let's go further with Jack Kerouac, because the notebooks and letters and stories he left behind show a man who reflected a lot on the bargain you make when you decide to play a contact sport. There's a theory, and it's just a theory, that football damaged not just Kerouac's bones, but his brain. Because as he grew older, he became depressed. He had violent outbursts, and his memory faded, alarming him. He'd always had a great memory. In one letter Ian Scheffler told me about, he wrote to a friend how he, quote, used to be a kind drunk.
0: And then he said, but now I feel that I'm a mean drunk with the kindness valve clogged by injury. Clogged by injury, those are his words. Isaac
3: Gewertz, the archivist, says Kerouac saw himself both as a tough guy and as a sensitive person. And he couldn't figure out how those two fit together.
4: I'm not sure if this was published, or maybe it's in a draft, but he went into a gay bar...
3: And um he was he had a gun with him, I believe. he brings a gun to a gay bar, and some guy not knowing about the weapon, tries to pick him up and he took out his gun and threatened him with it and then
4: um he went out and later he went the guy took off but then he later went outside and you know and he couldn't he said,
3: well, why did I do that?" Kerouac couldn't answer that question. But science now shows that playing football can damage the brain. Today, the illness associated with concussions is known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Maybe Jack Kerouac had it. But it also has to be said, Kerouac lived hard. Years after he quit the Lions and dropped out of Columbia, he got into bar fights, a car accident, drinking, drugs. Nevertheless, Scheffler says,
0: Despite the fact that we can't say anything conclusive, his profile, meaning his history of head trauma... And the symptoms he experienced later in life, are they, they, they so clearly match the profiles of the people who have been found to have had CTE post-mortem, such as Junior Seau, such as Andre Waters.
3: Those are two NFL players whose brains have been examined by researchers.
0: That as Robert Cantu, uh, who's one of the leaders of this Boston University team, said to me, it seems quite likely that head trauma did contribute in some way to his decline.
3: Jack Kerouac died at age 47 of an abdominal hemorrhage. We will never know whether this theory has any truth to it, because you'd have to autopsy Kerouac's brain, and his brain has not been preserved. Outside of the library, I asked Scheffler how knowing all this, or speculating on it, changes how we see the man.
0: I mean, counterfactual games like this are always a bit problematic, but Jack Kerouac might never have become the writer he became if he hadn't come to Columbia and met this circle of people which he never could have without playing football. So even if football played a role in shortening his life, it nonetheless played a role in enlarging it.
3: It's a trade-off. Lead a richer, more exciting life, but risk real physical harm. Today, a lot of people around football see it differently. They believe, or want to believe, that you can grab the glory and stay safe, or safer. I'm not so sure. What I can tell you is that with six games behind them, almost every lion is hurting. There are a few bigger injuries, but mostly it's stuff that guys can shrug off. I have to push players, Brock Kenyon and Josh Foster, to say exactly what's bothering them. To be specific, where does it hurt? (laughs) Uh, My hip and my elbow hurt pretty bad right now. (laughs) What hurts for
2: you? (laughs) Well, I mean, I have some old legs. Being a senior now, all them squats and everything is finally getting to me, but yeah, just... It's just overall soreness and stuff.
3: A college senior is telling me he feels old. I'm almost twice his age. Now let's spend some time with a Lion whose football career has already been shaped by injury. Hey!
2: They gone? They gone? Uh, you guys gone? H-19 on a hero,
0: please.
3: H-19! We're picking up lunch with Hunter Little, a senior defensive lineman and a history major. Oh, yeah. The last time we talked with him, the conversation was about Homer, Achilles, and the Trojan War. He's the guy who said this.
2: Uh, well, there's something to be said for glory.
3: Today's a Monday, which means Recuperation Day. The Lions do not practice on Mondays. So we've taken our enormous hot sandwiches to a table in the sun on campus, and while I paint my face with the red sauce from an eggplant parm, Hunter tidily dispatches his tuna melt. He's had practice.
2: Joint pain, and, you know, you'll get some bruises. Um, sorry for tying with my no. mouthful, full, um You'll get bruises and different things like that. You know, the best way to prevent injury is to hit harder. Oh, really? Um,
3: Hit harder. Mom never told you to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, most injuries will happen, particularly in practice, because someone isn't going full speed. Someone isn't doing the drill to the right tempo, or someone isn't, you know, they're kind of taking the play off, or they're half-assing it, or whatever they're doing, and so that's when you get hurt, is when you're not you know, moving at 100 miles per hour.
3: So, Hunter has this big grin that can turn diabolical when he's talking about harassing the other team's quarterback. But his Facebook profile shows that same grin, sandwiched between two fluffy white puppies. And he looks so friendly and goofy. These contradictions, they still get me. A little over a year ago, in training camp, before classes had even begun, Hunter felt a stab of pain in his foot.
2: Well, yeah, I thought it was turf toe, and, which is just where you, like, jam your big toe, kind of. And it sucks, but you get over it, and it's like, you know, it's not a big deal. And so, you know, the next day when my foot was as swollen as it was, I was like, oh, yeah, this is not, this is, like, not what I want to be dealing with. And so, yeah, <laughs> it was just kind of the slow realization of, uh, of what was happening.
3: They took x-rays. The good news? There was no fracture. It was a foot sprain.
2: You know, just we'll wait till the swelling goes down, and then we'll kind of determine how many we should have.
3: The bad news?
2: The problem was is that the swelling didn't go down.
3: It was eventually diagnosed as a Liz Frank sprain, a sort of fluke-torn ligament in the foot that takes months to heal.
2: This is the first time where I was like, physically something had happened that I couldn't control, and so that was interesting to deal with, but
3: yeah. He was out for the season, and he had a choice live out his senior year like an ordinary undergrad, procrastinating on papers, sleeping in on Saturdays, maybe partying some more, or wait a whole year to play football again for a team with a losing record. Hunter is now a fifth-year senior. So far this season, the Lions have been lucky. They haven't had too many serious injuries. But Al Bagnoli has been coaching football for decades, and even though the game has become considerably safer, there's still a lot about it that troubles him.
2: I mean, to me, that's the worst part about our sport. There's nothing worse to see a kid work his tail off and prepare, and then all of a sudden he gets derailed by a serious injury, and it happens. It's it's a violent, contact-driven sport, and you hold your breath on every snap.
3: People have known since Kerouac's time, and even before that, that football was dangerous. But it's only been in the past decade or so that doctors have been slicing open the brains of deceased players and looking at them carefully. Some players are even bequeathing their brains to science. A few years ago, Bagnoli was part of a committee that limited in-season full-contact practices in the Ivy League to try to reduce concussions. This goes beyond the NCAA's rules. Today, any college football player who shows signs of concussion must come off the field... And he can only return when he's been cleared by a doctor.
2: We have standard period of time that kids have to wait before they can retest. Then you have a standard protocol of how you return, stages that you have to go through. And I think we've taken an awful lot of the guesswork out of it.
3: These new rules would probably shock the coach who ordered Jack Kerouac back on the field with a broken leg. All right, now that we've thought about all the terrible things that can happen, let's get to the game.
1: Ladies and Gentlemen, we ask that you join us in practicing good sportsmanship in supporting your teams.
3: I find you can enjoy the game a lot more if you put blinders on. All across America, people seem to be doing that. Today, the Lions are at Yale, the Yale Bowl. Maybe you've heard of it. It's an architectural marvel as impressive as a Roman Colosseum, and with chipped concrete and paint flaking off the sagging wooden benches, it looks old too. The Bagnolis are both from around here, East Haven, and they have a whole crew at the game. Coach's wife, Mary Ellen, naturally, her mom, her sister, Al's sister, and a bunch of other people I don't even get to meet. The talk that's not about football is about food. All the pizza around here. No, it There was always Tollies and De
1: Palmas, but Tollies, we went to school with Andy, so, you know, we'd always end up at
4: Tollies. That's on Main Street in East Haven.
3: Dinner is already decided.
4: But tonight we're going to... Sandpiper. Oh, you were going for fish. The best.
0: Where's the, the
4: sandpiper? Piper? East is Right by the beach, Memorial Beach,
1: right on the beach.
3: In the first quarter, the Lions struggle. Yale scores a touchdown on a kickoff return of 80 yards. Columbia can barely manage a first down. But like last week, Columbia defense is badgering the opponents, and they're starting to wear the Bulldogs down. By the way, at some point, someone walks across the edge of the field with an actual bulldog on a leash, like it's the most natural thing in the world. you
4: see the bulldog? Oh, my gosh!
3: By the half, the teams are tied, 7-7. I'm sitting with Hunter Little's mom, Julie Meisler. She's missed only one game in four or five years. She flies up from Knoxville to be here, and she has only two positions. On the edge of her seat, or standing up cheering. Her favorite phrase... Get him! him! Hunter told me earlier he can hear his mom from on the field. He can pick up her voice out of the crowd. This would bug the hell out of me if my mom did something like this. Hunter doesn't seem to mind. But here's a worrying sight. Hunter on an exercise bike. Now, kickers will use the bikes to stay warm between plays, but other players usually use them when they're hurting.
4: I've never seen him do that before, so maybe he just was feeling tight.
3: Have you seen seen him get injured?
4: One time that he did was at the Princeton game when he injured his back, and he went to the ground, and I actually got up and started to go down to the field, and, and my husband's like, You know where are you going? I mean, it's not like you can do anything. And Hunter actually said to me afterwards that all he could think about was, I have to get up because of my mom. And so I told him, Don't ever think that. If you have to stay down, stay down. But it was just a he had pulled his back a little bit, so it wasn't serious. Um, But that's always a horrible fear for all parents whose son is out there on the football field.
3: When you're watching the game, your attention is generally on the rectangle and what's happening inside. But all around it, there are medical professionals who are prepared for every possibility. Here are the things Jim Gossett, Columbia's director for sports medicine, carries with him on his belt at all times, at games, at practices.
1: I carry an air pump to fill the bladders in the helmets.
3: Helmets now have airbags, and sometimes they deflate. I carry uh, bandaging equipment like
1: gauze and coverlet band-aid type items. I carry glucose. This is for the
3: diabetics on the team.
1: I carry a special release tool because on the helmet face mask there's a pin that needs to be pushed. So in case someone would go into respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest and we would have to start CPR, we pop the face mask so we can get access to the the mouth and and nose.
3: He also carries a few over-the-counter medications like acetaminophen and ibuprofen.
1: (laughs) A little bit of skin lube because they'll get a little abrasions or, or some chafing that you want to cover up. And a pair of scissors and athletic tape to wrap everything up.
3: Beside the stadium, at every game, there's an ambulance on standby. On the sidelines, there's a mobile treatment cart. Gossett calls it an examination table on wheels containing a defibrillator, vacuum splints, cervical spine trauma equipment there are so many ways to get hurt playing football or never mind playing just practicing football with your own teammates
1: and again i mean keep in mind you're dealing with a little over 100 players at most times on the field but we also have staff and coaches so you know who's to say one of them might not have an issue they might get hit by another player you know Mixed up in a drill, they could have, you know, cardiac issues.
3: It's weird because players' medical records are confidential and Columbia guards their privacy. And yet, if anything happens here, thousands of people will be watching. Good job. Good job. In the third quarter, Hunter is back in the mix and the Lions look strong. The Columbia defenders sack Yale's quarterbacks five times in the second half. At the top of the fourth quarter, it's tight Columbia 10, Yale 7. The Lions have the ball at the Yale 13-yard line, and it's a fourth down. Time to attempt a field goal. And as you'd expect, the Lions send out junior kicker Cameron Nizalek. But what Columbia does next surprises everyone.
1: Play clock is down to five, down to four, two.
3: Nizalek does not attempt the kick. It's a fake. The ball is tossed to Nizalek, and he carries it up the side of the field into Yale's end zone. Easy
4: with the touchdown, and Columbia goes in front, 16-7. to Are you kidding me? That was stunning everybody, and you can hear the oohs and ahs of the crowd here at the Yale Bowl.
3: This is Nizelik's first touchdown ever. He's a kicker, after all. Next, he puts the ball through the goalposts for the extra point. Later, Coach Bagnelly explained what happened. He had noticed Yale defense had been applying pressure on the inside but not much on the edges of the field. And Nizelik, the Lions kicker, had made a 40-yard field goal earlier in the game, so Yale was definitely expecting another field goal attempt. Perfect conditions for a bold play.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you're only going to call it once, and it's either you look great or you look like a fool. You know, it's kind of an aggressive approach we have, and we're just very fortunate that it actually
3: worked. I said last week that the Lions didn't seem like a turnaround story. Not yet. Well, my mind is changing. After that sloppy first quarter, the Lions clawed their way back into the game. They didn't let up. That's mental toughness. It doesn't hurt that Yale has more injured players than Columbia, but that's football. You grab any advantage you can find.
2: Quarterback in.
1: And the final seconds will tick off the clock. Your final score from New Haven on Halloween, the Lions 17, Yale 7.
3: Columbia's first Ivy League win since 2012. Their first win on the road since 2009. The Lions held the Bulldogs to negative 14 yards rushing, while they racked up 153 yards. They dominated. And when it's over, the moms and dads they flood onto the field. Julie finds Hunter.
2: And that's that's what a, that's what a team win looks like. You know, like that's what we talk about doing is being is is having a complete team win. You know, in all in all phases of the game. And, You know, special teams started out rough, but we we corrected that and we fixed it and we, you know, we we made up all the little mistakes at the beginning and that was a complete win. Yeah, that was
3: awesome. What was the point when you were like, actually, we do... Put yourself in harm's way and you may get hurt, but you may also have a shot at glory. At the beginning of this season, I sort of described myself as a zero when it comes to football, a newbie, but... That's not really honest. Because if you're an American-born male, and I am, it takes an act of will to avoid football. And I did avoid it, all through boyhood. I didn't really want to hit people, and I was definitely scared of other people hitting me. These days, I am miking tackles from the sidelines. And if one happens right in front of me and I hear it loud and clear in my headphones, I am pumped. But risking your own health, your well-being, for some kind of acclaim to me, grown-up Ilya, That still seems totally crazy. But this idea, it had a hold on Jack Kerouac.
0: And in the archive, I found a short story that, as far as I know, is still unpublished um, and perhaps may never be.
3: Again, Ian Scheffler.
0: that can be read to describe what he thought about football around the time he himself was a Columbia football player. So just
3: like today's Columbia undergrads, Jack Kerouac read the Iliad. He knew the Trojan War. And the story Kerouac wrote, Scheffler says, is clearly very much inspired
0: by the story of the Greek warrior Achilles, a demigod. If you're a little rusty on Achilles... He is essentially Marshawn Lynch and Tom Brady and every great football player rolled into one on the battlefield. He's unstoppable. He can single-handedly turn the tide of the war. But there's a catch. Achilles' mother is a goddess,
3: and he can become immortal like her but only if he chooses to lead a boring life and stay out of wars. The thing is, he's good with bows and arrows and spears, so battle is tempting.
0: But if he re-enters the war, he won't live very long, and that's something he knows. He will win everlasting glory, and he did, because if, if he ever existed, here we are talking about him. The price of glory is high, and this is the myth on which Kerouac based his short story. What really shocked me is that Kerouac himself conceived of football in this way. The short story he wrote makes very clear that the theme is Homeric Valor. He scribbles that on the first page in the margin in in very clear, I think it's red ink. Kerouac's
3: tale is from the perspective of a kick returner, the position Kerouac played.
0: As the kick returner waits for the ball, it's spiraling toward him. The moment's really drawn out. The horde of defenders rushing toward him to prevent him from advancing down the field morphs into a barbarian horde. Barbarian is the word the Greeks used to describe non-Greeks. So he's aligning himself with the Greeks, with Achilles in this very moment. And the kick returner, this proxy for Kerouac, who probably was laid up having broken his leg when he wrote this story, and perhaps contemplating his own involvement with football and the choices he was making in his life, the kick returner's thoughts vacillate between imagining the overwhelming glory of a touchdown, the stadium ricocheting with sound and, and, and joyous excitement as he crosses the goal line, And then also, at the same time, imagining that if he comes into contact with that barbarian horde, he might literally die.
3: In his early life, Jack Kerouac's path to fame looked like it was going to be sports, for sure. But something changed when he was a Columbia Lion. And he put down the football and picked up the pencil and maybe some Benzedrine. And later, he became famous for his words, for stories without much plot, but thick with atmosphere, rhythm, and muscle. And we still... Remember his name. Next time on The Season, we're looking at networks, numbers, and recruitment. Also, Columbia faces Harvard. Harvard is undefeated this fall. The Season is produced by Matt Collette with engineering by Casey Means. We're edited by Karen Frillman with Sean Bowditch and Charlie Herman. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Special thanks this week to writer Ian Scheffler, whose article on Jack Kerouac and football is on our website, wnyc.org slash the season. Special thanks also to the New York Public Library, where Isaac Gewirtz curates the Berg collection of 35,000 printed volumes. Thanks also to the Ivy League Digital Network for game audio. Some of the music you've heard was recorded by the Columbia University Marching Band. There are only three games left this fall. What else do you want to know about the Lions? Robert from Manhattan wrote us a letter, actual snail mail. He wants to hear about an earlier Lions coach, Norris Wilson, who got off to a good start but ended up losing a lot of games. What happened to destroy Wilson's progress, he writes. By the way, Norris Wilson is now running backs coach at Rutgers. Please send us your ideas. The email is theseason at wnyc.org. I'm Ilya Meritz.